Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The Adam Shine Podcast. Ah, yes. Episode 75 of the Adam Shine Podcast. And... This is as great as it gets. The best sportscaster ever, Bob Costas, is the featured guest this week on the Adam Shine Podcast. Bob and I talk about Shohei Otani, Belichick and Brady, LeBron and Jordan, and every single baseball take you've ever wanted to hear from Bob Costas. It is a tremendous, tremendous interview. So without further ado, Bob Costas on the Adam Shine Podcast. The featured guest on the Adam Shine Podcast, legendary broadcaster, Bob Costas. Bob, we appreciate the time. How are you? I'm good, Adam, and I know you're doing well because you've recently joined a bunch of us in the WAER Hall of Fame, which may not resonate with most of the audience the way it does with us, but if you're part of that Syracuse cabal, which now dominates much of sports broadcasting, uh, then you know that the Tarikos and the McDonough's and the Marv Alberts and the Dick Stockton's and on and on, you know, there's a fraternity there, and you are now officially part of it. It really was such an incredible honor, and it was a, an amazing night, and to be part of that, I mean, you think of all the broadcasters who have come out of Syracuse, and, you know, the kids who go to Newhouse School and want to be a sportscaster, there are 20 people in the WAR Hall of Fame, and it's an unbelievable honor, and I, I said it recently, I mean, there's, there's, that's it for me in terms of an honor, that's, it means the world, Syracuse is special, Newhouse, WAER, you know, you go into AER, you see the Hall of Fame pictures on, on the wall, you and Ian and Mike Tarico and Sean McDonough and Marty Glickman and Dick Stockton, you want to live up to that. I've talked about what WAER meant to me and, and my career. What did WAER in Syracuse, Bob, mean to you? Well, I'm in, relatively speaking, toward the beginning. Now, Marty Glickman goes back to the 1930s as a student athlete at Syracuse. Track, football, and basketball. And as many people know, he was Jesse Owens' teammate on the 1936 Olympic team for the United States in Berlin and became really the first truly accomplished ex-athlete turned broadcaster and not just an analyst or color person, but a play-by-play guy, a host, distinctive voice. And I read in a Nick yearbook during my junior year in high school, late 1960s, that both Marty, the original voice of the Knicks, and Marv Albert, essentially his successor, had gone to Syracuse. And so I checked with my guidance counselor. There's no internet then and no way to really check all this stuff besides pamphlets that you'd write away for and the schools would send back to you. And he said, yeah, Syracuse has a renowned journalism program. And I already knew that they played 
big-time sports, so it makes sense that if you're interested in being a sports broadcaster, and Marty and Marv went there, and your guidance counselor gives it the thumbs up on the journalism <laughs> side, that you'd want to go there. But what really mattered, Adam, is we're talking about a half century ago. My freshman year is 1970. They were so far ahead of the curve. The facilities at the Newhouse School in the early 70s were superior to most commercial stations around the country. And they put equal emphasis on broadcasting as they did on print. At that time, print, generally speaking, looked down its nose on the broadcast side. Print was the real journalism, and broadcasting, not so much. But Syracuse, I think, was farsighted. They saw that this was coming, that the balance of power might very well shift, and it did. They couldn't have foreseen the Internet and all the aspects of that and the explosion of cable TV and all the aspects of that, good and bad. But at that time, they were interested in grooming future broadcasters as well as future uh, print journalists. And the very important thing, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, was that you got to be on the air on WAER soon after you got there. Yeah. I enrolled in September of 1970. I was on the air in October of 1970, 18 years old. I was terrible, but the only way that you're going to learn if you have the knack for it and have a chance to develop it is by doing it. You know, you want to get as good an education as you possibly can. I always tell kids, get a well-rounded education. It'll help you as a broadcaster. Uh, the, the greater your frame of reference, the more you know about the world. But you can't learn to be a broadcaster in a classroom. The only way you can learn that is by doing it and finding out if you have some knack for it and then developing that knack. And WAER in Syracuse gave all of us a huge head start in that direction. Yeah, without question. You summed that up perfectly. And listen, I always say I owe Syracuse, Newhouse School, WAER. I, I owe them everything. So it's great to hear that from, from your perspective as well. And for the audience, we're taping this around noon Eastern on, on Tuesday afternoon, which is noteworthy because it's eight hours, Bob, before first pitch of Yankees-Red Sox. And Listen, there's nothing quite like Yankees, Red Sox. And, you know, I'm an obsessed Yankee fan, obsessed baseball fan. Obviously, there's history, tradition, rivalry. There's great buzz and anticipation, which is great for the sport. I still don't like a wild card game coming down to nine fluky innings. You know, frankly, 106 win Dodger team. It really bothers me. I wish this was two out of three. Where do you stand on the nine-inning wild card? Do you think baseball should move it to a series? Well, you know, there's a distinction here, and I know you appreciate it, Adam, between a game 163 and a scheduled, before the season starts, wild card game. If a season comes down to a deadlock after 162, the way it did between these two franchises in 1978, and they play one game, that's entirely appropriate and incredibly dramatic yep. because they've, that's so different than playing overtime in a basketball game or an extra inning in a, in a baseball game. That's what it comes down to. But although the Yankees and Red Sox had identical records this year, and the reason why the game is at Fenway is that by the narrowest of margins, the Red Sox won 10 out of 19 head-to-head with the Yankees. On the other side of the country, you've got the Cardinals – on Wednesday night, playing the Dodgers, and as hot as the Cardinals have been, they won, I think, 90 games this year, and the Dodgers won 106. 
and it comes down to a roll of the dice, and everyone knows that a single baseball game, even though the odds are with the Dodgers, they're the better team top to bottom, and they're at home, and they'll have Max Scherzer against Adam Wainwright, and Wainwright's a remarkable story, but Scherzer might very well win the Cy Young Award. It's just more likely that the lesser team wins a single baseball game than a single football game or a single basketball game. I mean, after all, in an average season, the best team wins roughly 100 and loses 60 or so, and even the worst team wins roughly 60 or so. And it's over the long haul that that difference becomes more obvious and more pronounced. So is it fair? No, it's not fair. Is it dramatic? Yeah, I guess it's, it's dramatic. And in the case of the Yankees and the Red Sox, it actually is equitable because basically they tied. Yeah. Basically they tied over the course of 162, and now they're going to decide it. Uh, and they, they applied home field based on the fact that the, the Red Sox won 10 and the Yankees won 9 head-to-head. So there are times when it turns out that it's okay. And then there will always be the possibility that the two best teams in baseball are in the same division, the Giants and the Dodgers. And one of them could go home after one game, and one of them has to go home before the LCS. One of them will not make it as far as the LCS because if the Dodgers win the wild card, um, well, that's wrong. One of them could go home before the LCS. If the Cardinals were to win the wild card game, I guess the Giants could beat them and, and advance to the LCS. But you get my point. The two best teams in baseball are not guaranteed and, in fact, by definition, cannot meet in the LCS. They'll have to meet in the division series if they meet at all. Well, it just feels wrong, and, and I feel terrible for the Dodgers because you're right. I mean, anything can happen in, in a baseball game, you know, and that's the right math, you know, 162 or 62 and 100, and I, I'm with you completely on that. And it just it feels wrong that a 106-win team that season comes down to nine, quote-unquote, fluky innings. Bob, I'm curious with the Cardinals this year. I missed it all. I, I, I never once, and I liked them preseason, then I kind of got off that and said, all right, the Brewers are significantly better. Power pitching, power hitting. Mm-hmm. I, I never once looked at the Cardinals and said, okay, this team is going to make a run until they literally went on that run in September. What was that moment for you where you said, you know what? The St. Louis Cardinals can make the playoffs. It was only when they got to about nine or ten in a row. Because when they were sort of hanging on the outskirts of contention, when they were three or four games back of the second wild card, and my friends from St. Louis would say, hey, they got a chance, my honest answer was, yeah, but, you know, this team really isn't capable of winning 10 of 12 or 12 of 15. And I guess I was right. They were capable of winning 17 in a row. (laughs) You know, and people will say, have you ever seen a streak like this? Well, yeah, occasionally. Um, the Moneyball A's in the early 2000s during that stretch that the book and the movie were based on won 20 or 21 in a row. But anytime that has happened, it's always been a team that you knew already was good, not a team that appeared all season long to be a 500 team. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything clicks. Uh, you know, they've gotten production. Um, Tyler O'Neill, for example, hit 11 home runs in the month of September. If you had asked me at midseason, what's one of the things that's wrong with the Cardinals? Not enough production from their outfield. But that changed in the last, what, 25% of the season. That changed. And they're a very good defensive team. Uh, they not only make 
big plays, the kind of plays that make the highlight reel, but they don't screw up fundamental plays. They turn double plays. They hit the cutoff man on relays. They don't give the opposition extra outs. Um, and I don't know how long it'll sustain, but from the time that they got them, Jay Happ and John Lester have helped a lot. Uh, I don't know what Jack Flaherty's exact circumstances are going forward. He would be the ace of the staff if completely healthy, but he missed much of the year. So Adam Wainwright, who's a revelation at age 40, um, he takes the mound in in the wild card game. You know, it's just everything kind of maxed out for them all at once. Whether they can sustain it for a postseason run, who's to say? But uh, it's been a wild ride to this point. You know, Bob, I was of the opinion last year in the middle of a pandemic in 2020, whatever the sport was, I wasn't going to be critical of rule changes or anything different. You know, it was a bizarre year. You know, I was appreciative of the effort to get, you know, games played and throw things against the wall, try different things, see what sticks. But I did have a couple of critiques on, on baseball. The runners, uh, runner on second base to start extra innings, I... I thought that was a carnival act. I, I thought that went against baseball. I, I was so disappointed that that was in the regular season again this year. I'm happy that's not in the in the postseason. What was your reaction? And and please tell me we're not going to see the runner on second base to start extra innings ever again. I think that Rob Manfred hinted at midseason that when COVID is substantially behind, and we're hoping we're moving in that direction. Uh, that was really a COVID thing, uh, started in 2020, to try and get games over as quickly as possible. Um, I think Manfred's position is that it's not here to stay, at least not necessarily here to stay. And thankfully, it's never been part of the postseason. It wasn't in 2020. It isn't now. If they were to keep it, I could possibly see, with a nod toward the difference in the way pitching is used now, um, you get a nine-inning game that's three to one, and each team might use a half dozen pitchers. You get a game that goes on forever. The way modern staffs are put together, that could blow a staff out for a week or at least change things uh, considerably. So if it has to come back in any form, I would say maybe you start it in the 12th inning. Uh, at least play a couple of innings under normal circumstances. I do think, though, that you know everything that has maybe even a substantial downside has occasionally an upside. I thought that there were interesting strategic aspects to the runner on second base beginning in the 10th inning. You know, it's always an advantage to bat last. But with this rule, it's a huge advantage to bat last. Because you don't know in the top of the 10th or the 11th or as long as it goes whether you should play small ball and settle for one or whether you're going to need more than one. But if you shut the team down in the top of the inning and now there's a guy on second to start, you know you can bunt. You know you can play for one run, and the game will end right there. So, so that put a, a different st strategic wrinkle into it. I don't know that it justifies the whole idea, but that was an aspect of it. How about adding more playoff teams? I could appreciate that it increases the buzz for fans and for players as well in those clubhouses, and I want to be sensitive to that. I've always felt, you know, less is more when it comes to Major League Baseball after 162 games. Where do you stand on the addition of more playoff teams? You know, I just don't see how there's any format, Adam, that protects a team like the Dodgers this year. Yeah. Uh, that protects a team that not only is better than all the wild card teams and substantially, not marginally, but substantially better, but is better than any of the other division winners. 
There's no format that's equitable in a circumstance like that. Um, one proposed format that I think made a lot of sense, I first heard from Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox. And if they want to go at some point to seven playoff teams per league, um, 14 total, his idea was this. The three division winners are in, no matter what. And then one plays four among the four wild cards on the home field of the higher seed, and two hosts three. And the two winners then play on the home field of the higher seed. So you have to win two games um, to advance. A single defeat sends you home, and you have to win two games to advance. Uh, that creates a proper distinction between the wild card and division winners. You get it over with pretty quickly. Maybe you could cut the regular season to 156, which is basically one three-game series at home for each team, with additional revenue to come by adding all those additional playoff games, every one of which is an elimination game, which television really likes. Um, and then you could expand the division series to best of seven, because I've always said it yeah. makes no sense to have that round, the only one which by definition now includes the wild card team and the third best division winner. Why should that be the potentially flukier best of five, especially with two off days, which allows you to do things with your pitching that you couldn't do during the course of the season, two off days to accommodate television? Why not make that best of seven and then to further advantage the best team in the league when the wild card plays the number one division winner instead of the standard 2-3-2, two, two, it could be 2-2-3. Two, two, um, that would put some greater emphasis on the regular season, but still it does not protect a team like the Dodgers. Even though that format would make more sense perhaps than others that have been proposed, it would still expose a team like the Dodgers to one game after 162 games of excellence. No second-place team in baseball history has ever won that many games. After all that, you could be out after one game. I can't think of a format that doesn't allow for that possibility. Which I think protecting a team like the Dodgers is, is paramount and incredibly important. You know, you referenced something in that answer that I, I wanted to piggyback off of. 162, cutting that number in the regular season. I, I'm in favor of that for a variety of reasons. I know that a lot of people say 162 is a sacred number. Do mm -hmm. you think baseball could benefit cutting down the regular season? Yeah, I do, and I don't think it's a sacred number anymore. Uh, 1961 was the first season, as it happened, uh, of 162 games, um, and that's when Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's record, uh, and there was much consternation about that because he had 59 after 154 games. So that's where the supposed asterisk, which is actually uh, more of a myth than a fact. There's no asterisk in the record book, but at the time, it was suggested. So then it seemed like there was more of a distinction between 154 and 162. But how is 162 sacred now? No one, whether you play 156 or 166 or, 100, or stay at 162, no one's going to hit 74 home runs without being juiced. Right. Not going to happen. Right. And winning 30 games in a season is not a practical consideration. 
or having the extra eight games a year or whatever number it is over the course of a 20-year career isn't going to make any difference anymore to somebody who's trying to hit 500 home runs or trying to win 300 games. Because the meaning of all those things, the 300 games is just off the table. It's not going to happen again, uh, at least in the foreseeable future. And the other records, the home run records and whatnot uh, that would be affected by that aren't reachable because of the steroid era. And if somebody somehow, unlikely as it would be, hit 400 um, in 156 games, well, Ted Williams did it in, in 154 and had they played the 1994 season at completion and Tony Gwynn had finished over 400, he would have done it in 162. That's a percentage thing, not a total thing. So I don't see any problem with that. As someone who really uh, is sensitive to the records and the history and the generational comparisons, I don't see a problem with landing back at 154 or probably more likely 156. I don't want to be subject to hyperbole or prisoner of the moment. I consider Shohei Otani's season the most special and unique in baseball history. What did you see from Otani? I saw a unicorn. I saw something we have never seen before. And when people draw the comparison to Babe Ruth, look, you can't take anything away from Babe Ruth. He is and always will be a towering figure in the history of the game. And yes, he almost certainly would have been a Hall of Famer as a pitcher. He was one of the best pitchers of his time in the dead ball era. So he would have made the Hall of Fame as either a pitcher or obviously as a hitter. And there were some years where there was some overlap between his hitting exploits and his pitching exploits, but never to the extent and the level of excellence of Shohei Otani. Babe Ruth was never simultaneously as good a pitcher and hitter as Shohei Otani has been this year. I echo that, and I've used that word unicorn, so I'm thrilled that that was the word that you used in describing Otani. I'm curious, uh, getting into football for a quick second, Bob, Mm -hmm. what you saw on Sunday night with Belichick and Brady, because... You know, you you were involved in Football Night in America for for so long and part of the NBC coverage. And, you know, you were part of the soundtrack for, to me, the greatest dynasty in sports history. What they did over a 20-year period, considering the salary cap and how the league is set up for parity and competitive balance. When you reflect on Brady and Belichick and that combination... What made them so incredible together, in your opinion, in New England? I don't know if I was close enough to it, Adam, to really have as much insight as those who were on the beat uh, in Boston or uh, some of the analysts on network television who had extensive meetings with Belichick. And, uh, and I'm, I understand that in those meetings, if it's with football people he respected, he was very open and very yeah. conversational. Uh, it's in the press conference things where uh, if he considers the question boring or uninformed or just not in his best interest to answer, that's when he becomes a sphinx. But parenthetically here, maybe some of your listeners have seen this, and maybe you have too, Adam. This is one of the most amazing and revealing things I've ever seen, and someone pointed it out to me on YouTube. Recently, someone asked him about the importance of a long snapper. It's amazing. You, you saw it, right? It's amazing. It's absolutely he gave amazing. a 12-minute dissertation <laughs> on the history and evolution of the position. That was like, it, it was like a master class. 
not just in football in general or the quarterback position or linebacker. It was, it was about the long snapper, every nuance you could ever imagine. And friends of mine like Chris Collinsworth, who have sat with Belichick, you know, done film study with him, say how beneficial that would be. So I, I don't have that, that depth of connection, but I would say that it's obvious that Belichick, you can't put anybody ahead of him. You can make arguments for different people because things are different in different eras. Um, but you can't put anybody ahead of Belichick because the record speaks for itself. And Tom Brady is, this is the best way to put it, Tom Brady is the most accomplished quarterback in NFL history. Yeah, You can make a case that Montana was 4-for-4. Four four. You can make a case that Otto Graham won like nine championships in ten seasons dating back to before the official – uh, he officially entered the NFL, whatever conference the Browns were in uh, prior to that. You know, he was a great winner, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, and there may have been pure passers who were better, Dan Marino, whatever it might be. But no one is more accomplished than Brady. And the two of them together, these idiotic arguments like, oh, uh, it was all this guy or all that guy. Oh, come on. They, you know, they, they could not have done it without each other. End of story. I've always believed that. How about in, from the historical perspective when you look at LeBron and, and Michael Jordan? Because you were part of you know mm-hmm. so many of those NBC broadcasts and you have such a great basketball appreciation for history. To me, Michael has always been, will always be, well, maybe I shouldn't say will always be, but is number one of all time as an NBA player. And LeBron has carved out a terrific career. Where do you fall on LeBron versus Michael Jordan? Here's the answer I've taken to giving. Even if you could make an argument that in some sense, by some calculus, LeBron has been equally excellent, he has not been equally great. It might be almost impossible to be equally great. The impact that Michael Jordan had on the league, the impact on basketball's global growth and its cultural position um, and the marketing of the sport. Plus, six for six in the finals, the MVP every time. And with all due respect to LeBron, who's had more than his share of great plays, I guess the the most consequential one was the block in the finals uh, against the Warriors, and the Cavaliers did come from 3-1 down against a team that has the best regular season record in NBA history, so that's nothing uh, to, to sneeze at. Nonetheless, Michael Jordan has, in the public imagination, many more locked-in-the-mind's-eye moments than LeBron has. You know, he just every, every way you look at it, I just have to put Michael ahead. But I will say this, when we talk about the greatest players of all time, I think centers have to go in a different category. I agree. How how can you compare Michael to Wilt Chamberlain? No one statistically ranks above Wilt in the prime of his career. He's like Ruth at the beginning of the live ball era, or he's like Gretzky statistically. Um, And then Kareem, just for sustained excellence, and people forget, but Kareem was part of six championship teams as well. Uh, So... You know, there, there are arguments to be made and points to be made on behalf of others. But the same, same, I would say the same thing about Jordan as I would say about Brady and Belichick. At minimum, you can't put anyone ahead of them. If you want to make an argument for a handful of others who belong in that same class, 
go ahead and I could respect it. But I, you can't put anybody ahead of them. You can't say Vince Lombardi was definitely better than Bill Belichick. Bill Walsh was definitely better than Bill Belichick. You can make a case that they were as good. I don't think you can put anybody ahead. Same thing with Brady, same thing with Jordan. Bob, I'd make the case you're the greatest of all time in terms of sportscasting and greatest studio host ever and obviously all the work you've done for the Olympics, just incredible, and play-by-play, NBA. But there's nothing to me like listening to you call a baseball game. Oh, thank you. The, but the joy that, that pours through the television and the joy that I get listening to it, I mean, is it, of all the things that you do and have done and, you know, you're, you have the art of the sit-down interview, which I, I think is just such a lost art and the way you listen and ask questions, is there still something for you at, at this stage of your accomplished career where there's nothing like calling a baseball game? Yeah, and I don't think, to be perfectly honest, Adam, a couple of Syracuse guys talking about broadcasting, that's what unites us. I don't know that I'm always as good as I once was at it. I think as you get a little bit older, um, some of the sharpness, you've got to be really careful. You know, do I judge the ball off the bat quite as quickly? We're talking about split seconds now, so that a call has the right rhythm to it. Uh, do I always judge it as well as I did in the 80s and 90s, you know, during COVID, when all of us were kind of confined, um, a lot of stuff popped up on YouTube or the single sport networks were showing archival games because they had no new stuff to show. In fact, Al Michaels called me once and said, I'm on three networks at once. (laughs) (laughs) They had an old ABC baseball game on the baseball network. They had one of his many games on the NFL network. And, you know, he did a couple of years of basketball for ABC. And one of the finals games that he called was all on simultaneously. So anyway, in watching some of these games, I I could tell that I had a consistently – better rhythm, consistently better anticipation. Maybe it's 90% there now. There's probably 10% where it's not quite what it used to be. Uh, And you have to try to figure it out. The way a guy who's lost a a little velocity on his fastball has to figure out how to approach this hitter and get this hitter out in a bit of a different way. Uh, But having stipulated that, one of the things I just really hope for when I'm calling a baseball game Uh, For example, I've got game two of the Astros and White Sox on the baseball network. It's an afternoon game in Houston on Friday. It's not going to have as massive an audience as a World Series game or Sunday night football. But what I'm hoping for is that a baseball fan who watches this says not only that Bob and Jim Codd and Buck Showalter made good points, but that it had a certain feel to it. It had a certain rhythm to it. You know, the greatest of the great, Vin Scully, who worked alone, essentially, um, he didn't just provide lyrics, and his lyrics were great. The way he presented it almost had a melody to it. Mm. And that's, that's what you aim for. Whether you ever achieve it is, is another question. But that's what you're aiming for, that there's just something not just accurate, not just competent, but something pleasing about it. Well, we hear that every time you're doing a game, and when you and Jim are together, it's it, it's a treat as as a viewer and a listener. It's it's great baseball history and appreciation, and 
Bob, we appreciate the time, and seriously, what a remarkable and wonderful career. Appreciate the incredible words about WAR at the start. Enjoy the playoff game coming up this week, and we'll talk to you again real soon. I'll close with this, Adam. When I was lucky enough uh, to be selected for the Ford Frick Award, which is the Broadcaster's Wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame, I got two phone calls within an hour of the announcement, one from Vin Scully and one from Dick Enberg. And they both said at least one line that was identical. They both said, welcome to the club. So now that you're in the WAER Hall of Fame, Adam, welcome to the club. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, it's Howard Bender from the Andy Up Podcast. Every weekday, Adam Ronis and I serve you up the picks, plays, and fantasy information needed to win your bets. You know, this isn't just your average sports betting show, though, for one very good reason. We won't tell you what to do unless we've already done it ourselves. That's right. We put our money where our mouths are, so we're just as invested in each bet as you are. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or listen on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Thank you for listening to another incredible episode of the Adam Shine Podcast. Bob Costas, one of the all-time greats. Thanks to our listeners on SiriusXM, our listeners on Pandora. Thanks to our listeners on Apple Podcasts and with Stitcher. We record the Adam Shine Podcast all year round, so please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can always catch me every weekday on my radio show, Shine on Sports, which airs from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern on SiriusXM and on Sports Radio Channel 82. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. The Adam Shine Podcast is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer of the Adam Shine Podcast, the great Bob Stew. The associate producers, Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound designed by my guy, Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to SiriusXM Senior, Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, the iconic Steve Cohen. Sirius XM Podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.